Let death upon my life and life's work choke. I'm done. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm guest editor Srikanth Reddy. I'm honored today to be led into the world of two poets, Jay Hopler and Kimberly Johnson. Jay and Kimberly have shared a life of art together for many years now. They're married, and they've also shared the difficulties of Jay's cancer diagnosis in 2017, when he was given two years to live. When he heard his diagnosis, Jay thought to himself, I have to finish a book in 24 months. And he did. And I'm grateful that he's with us today because of his perseverance in the face of this challenge to talk to us about writing this book. Kimberly persevered too, and she has a book coming out titled Fatal in the same spring as Jay's new book, Still Life is Coming Out. I'm very grateful to have both these writers with us today to share their experiences, their perspectives, and their poems with us. How should we begin? Maybe we begin in 2017. Okay. Well, okay, so um, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer on July 12th, 2017, at exactly 6.35 p.m., whilst the Muzak version of Cindy Lauper's Boys Just Want to Have Fun was, was playing. Girls. Girls, <laughs> girls just want to have fun. <laughs> right. I, I, I get the shivers to this day when, when I hear that song. But so the doctor and Kim was there, and um, so the doctor gave me two years to live at that point. And I thought, well, I actually had two thoughts. I, I, my first thought was, oh, oh, fuck you, that's not right. But my second thought was, all right, assuming he is correct, I've got 24 months to write a book from beginning to end. And, um, and, that has, and I've never done anything like that because there's a poem in my first book that literally took me 12 years to write, and it's two lines long. So I thought, I, but I got to give it a shot. So, so he's still talking to me about what I can expect from hospice and whatnot. And I turned to out the window, look out the window, and here in Utah, it was the most beautiful sort of late afternoon, and, the, and the, the wind was rolling through the rye grass, and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And I just started writing a poem at that moment before he even stopped talking about like what, what I was in store for. And unlike my other books, I couldn't count on getting the next day, so I couldn't I couldn't think, well, I'm going to revise this later. So, so each poem that I wrote, I had to hit it right the first time because I didn't have time to stick with it. I had to go on to the next thing just to make sure that I had, you know, something amassed. So if I passed away before it was finished, it, there would at least be something that I could leave behind. The Canonization no man convinced he was going to die on an island would on an island live, unless he wanted to die on that island, and I did. Talk about an end rhyme, but my life's a poem my death's been writing for a long time, and death abhors a well-wrought urn. I'm done, and they will burn me where I fall the aspen clapping ashes against the sky's blue wall, and they can burn these verses too, send us all to naught. Let them revel in the smoke. Let death upon my life and life's work choke. I'm done. I leave death to work what urn it will. 
My father was a sack of ash my mother kept on a windowsill for years after he passed. It didn't seem to cause him much distress. I left him on the island when I left. So luckily, the treatments at the Huntsman have been working up until this moment really fantastically. So, so the two years that I was given turned into almost five years at this point. So we're still in the midst of the battle, but at least we got, you know, our books, our books done. And Jay was an overachiever. He, he could not tolerate <laughs> the notion of two years. So at the very least, he's gone to five. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's Amazing to me to hear that the moment that you have kind of time stamped of receiving this news plunged you into kind of a, a kind of real time of making a poem <laughs> and that that time's become stretched. And it sounds also like one thing that you were dropped into at that moment was elegy as a literary form, you know, one of our oldest poetic forms. And oftentimes, almost always, we think about elegies as poems on the death of a loved one or of, a, of another person. But your book is kind of shot through with elegies for oneself, which is an incredibly powerful and urgent ex experience for me as a reader of the work. There's the line in the poem you read just now. My my life's a poem. My death's been writing death's for a long been time. Writing for a long time, and death abhors a well wrought urn. I'm done, and they will burn me where I fall. The aspen clapping ashes against the skies. Blue. Kimberly, in your book, I also feel that gravitational force of elegy that you're writing in many ways for Jay, but also for yourself in your own life uh, with Jay. And there's this beautiful passage in your poem, Funerals. There's no form for what I've become, half-widowed, so long before my widow had, unfutured, uncondoled. I wonder if you could talk about what it's like for you both to write these elegies and what, what elegies mean to you individually and what, they, what it means to write elegies together with someone. Well, I would start to answer that question by acknowledging that this book seems to me to be a turn into a new poetic register. I think that I have comforted myself for a very long time with the notion that a poem is a, what's the phrase, a, mach a machine made of words, and that my goal was to make a really functional machine as opposed to to try to reflect anything autobiographical. <clears throat> One of the surprising revelations that this book offered to me as a writer is that I was able to continue to pursue this kind of abstracted linguistic experiments and experiment and have it dovetail with something that seemed closer to home. Well, for me, it was weird because my last book was an elegy for my father. And I, I was like, wow, I just wrote an elegy. <laughs> I had hoped to have a little little variation in my in my life. <laughs> um, I actually poked fun at myself in one of the poems in the book about how I'm the constant elegist. Like, no matter what I try to write, I end up, it ends up being an elegy for something. 
For me, I wanted um, to quote Robert Lowell. I wanted words that were meat hooked from the living steer. Like I wanted to put my blood on the page so that there would be some kind of record of the journey and the toll that the journey was taking. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm an intuitive writer to begin with, but I wanted to turn off the editorial part of my brain and just receive whatever the universe was going to give me and, and do what I could with it. And writing an elegy with a person, well, first of all, writing an elegy <laughs> about the person who's dying when you're the person who's dying is like a weird like writer's workshop. <laughs> it's, like we're, it's like we're trying to get my life as beautiful as possible or something before I, before I check out. But it's, it was a weird, a weird undertaking, some of these poems, because they were so much like a joint, because we're both living it, sort of a joint undertaking. And that introduces one of the questions, which is, uh, to what degree it seems appropriate to talk about somebody else's physical decline and some of the challenges that attend upon that. If you are the spouse of somebody who's going through something like this, your instinct is to protect them. And it feels a little bit invasive to presume to own that experience and language. Like there's a poem in the book that I was very anxious to have written. And I talked to Jay about it because it felt to me perhaps a little bit too invasive. So we talked a lot about whether he felt that I was intruding over much on the privacy of his own body. Right. But actually the intrusion, when, when, when Kim brought, brought that poem to me, um, and in this, this one particular part, and it was very, I guess, sensitive. My questions were simple. I, I asked her, number one, is it accurate? Um, and, and she said, yes. And then I said, number two, does the poem require it? Like, would that poem be the same or better without it? And she said, no. And I said, well, those are the only two things that I care about. Because love is love, but poetry is poetry. <laughs> and, you, you know, there's, you got to put the love over here for a second, and you got to serve the art. And... I'll be honest with you, it's hard to hear, uh, but, I'll, but it's also beautiful. And I would never have asked for a, an inferior poem. Oh, that would be, that, that should be in like every poet's marriage vows, that you will never require of your partner an inferior poem so that your <laughs> ego could be soothed. <laughs> it is, I think, one of the most beautiful poems in your book, Kimberly, and most, the most painful I, 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 and you haven't even named the poem, but I know exactly which poem you're, you're both talking about. Uh, it's Foley Catheter, I would imagine. Yes. I wonder if you might read it, because if you feel like that would be a, a good thing to do. Sure, happy to do it. Foley Catheter. I clean its latex length three times a day with kindliest touch. Swipe an alcohol swatch from the tender skin at the tip of him, down the lumen to the drainage bag, I change each day and flush with vinegar. When I vowed for worse, unwitting did I wed this something other than a husband, jumble of exposed plumbing and euphemism. Fumble I through my nurse's functions, upended from the spare bed, by his every midnight sound. Unsought inside our grand romantic intimacy, another intimacy opens, ruthless 
and indecent, consuming all our hiddenmosts. In a body, immodest such hunger we sometimes call tumor. In a marriage, it's cherish, from the Latin for cost. When I hear that poem and when I think about it, I think about what Jay was saying about does the work serve poetry? And, you know, it's a poem about actually serving another human being. It's about providing a form of care. Uh, I wonder if you can, you or Jay, could talk a little bit about the kinds of forms of care that you find yourselves engaged in, not exclusively in your household daily lives, you know, going through treatment and the toll, the cost of that, but also care for one another's writing and voices that I'm hearing in these kind of parallel books. Mm. The dedications to the books in some ways talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that is true. What's your dedication? That uh, this book is for Kimberly Johnson, as is everything else, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and mine is in memory of, period. Yeah. Well, can I talk practically for a moment? I mean, some of the forms of care that are involved in our current situation are just like the physical caretaking on a day-to-day basis and the emotional caretaking on a day-to-day basis. But we also have a child still at home and uh, there are the various exertions to ensure that he is able to have as normal a teenage life as possible and to have a kind of uh, shield between that normality and various disruptions that may come into our lives. And there's the care of our professions, which involve being trying to be present for students. I mean, those are just some practical things that occurred to me. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Jay. That's, that sounds about... Practically, yeah. But also to create like an emotional space, a creative space where we can both go and sit in, in a way shut out what is currently happening so that we can we can create. That's also important. Being custodians of one another's time to some degree. The pandemic made it possible for Jay to teach remotely, which meant that our long marriage, which had been for years divided between one home in Utah and one home in Florida on our different teaching positions, we were able to blend those households. And so we had to build an addition on the house to make sure that Jay had space to be and space to put his stuff. And I mean that both materially and emotionally. Um, And so that was one of the large gestures that we did to preserve the creative process for Jay. And for years, he has gifted me uh, what I call the Solitude Nordic Center Riding Retreat, which is a season pass to a cross-country ski trail that I escape to (laughs) whenever I can. So that's a way that he has protected my riding space. Kim can only write when she is physically in motion. And I can only write when I'm sitting in front of a huge window. (laughs) 
So I hear that you met at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is actually where my wife and I met when we were graduate students many years ago. I'm uh, just wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. We met. Well, I walked. Actually, was it Joy's workshop or was Marvin Bell's seminar? I think it was a yeah, seminar on Whitman. Yes, yeah. right. So I walked in to uh, to Marvin Bell's seminar, and there was one seat open. And it was next to next to Kim. So I just sat down and started just chatting. Yeah, I, I wasn't really looking for anything. <laughs> I was just looking for my seat. But it became it became clear that uh, the two of us were doing different things than our classmates were doing. This was back in 95, I think, so mid-90s. And we, we sort of had like a sort of a kindred spirit thing going on. So we became fast friends. And I mean, we were, I, I would say, best best of friends for 20 years? It wasn't 20 years. Well, it seemed it like was... 20 years, but it was it was a, it was a long time time. But um, A dozen years. A dozen years, yeah, a dozen years uh, before we actually um, got, together. got together. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we went off and had lives. I got a PhD in, at Purdue, and you went off to Berkeley and did your PhD. And and my my PhD is in hitmen, so not even poetry. I, I went on a different different tack. <laughs> in uh, your doctorate is in assassination or uh, the study of hitmen. Well, it's uh, yeah, the study of hitmen. It was um, it's an American studies degree from Purdue, and I focused on hitman fiction, particularly short hitman fiction, and why. Americans seem particularly fond of it. Like hitmen who are short or <laughs> yeah. that's really talking about academics over specialization. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was a fun degree. Yes, yeah, so we had we had complete lives before we actually got together and had a life together. And I went to Berkeley and did a PhD in Renaissance literature and it had two children. Had two kids and here we are later. That's funny. I just um I and my wife just missed you because we met in Iowa at the Writers' Workshop in 1998. Mm-hmm. Ah. So you must have just left the year before. Yeah, that's right. But we didn't meet in the classroom. We met at the bar. The fox head? The fox head, exactly. <laughs> and, See, now, yeah. Jay and I never went to a bar. We what? both avoided bars studiously when we were at Iowa. That's so true. we would never have met you there anyway. That's the yeah. only thing to do at Iowa. I know. Yeah. Well, he wrote. Must have got a lot of writing done. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He would wake up at five in the morning and write for hours, and I would stay up late at night running and go out and explore, and hike around during the daytime. Yeah. Well, let's all meet up at the Hot Fox Head someday. Right. <laughs> That'd be great. I want to see it before I die. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy the drink. Right on. Sounds good. We'll yeah. Yeah. Do it. I'll be drinking then. Good. So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you read each other's work? Have you, have you always read each other's work? Oh, uh, he's my favorite poet. Yeah, and she is mine. Yeah, we've always read each other's work. And as you're, as you're writing, as you're, as you're making it, I, I know you shared Foley Catheter with Jay while you were putting it, it together, but is that oftentimes something you do? That's a good question. Um, yeah. I think Jay would agree that we are one another's first and last readers. Mm-hmm. Our process tends to be different. So... Jay will talk things through in process. Would you like? Would you agree? Right. Yeah. Kim will wait 
until she's done completely before she'll let me see anything. But I'll get a good line in my head and I'll just like walk through the house saying it over and over again. And then I'll say, what do you think? And then she'll look at me your opinion and I'll say, well, I changed it. And then I'll give her the new line. And just, we just go, we go back and forth like that. So I, I don't think she likes that, but that's how I, that's how I share my I life. like it just fine. <laughs> Those are such different ways of working. I mean, your, your books are really different books, but I, I do feel them kind of, speaking to each other or maybe facing in the same direction it's like two people two different people facing the same direction and i mean one different i mean this isn't to say that your book isn't without humor kimberly i mean your your book is really funny i remember there's a moment where you talk about planning a funeral and the nurse in the room like shushes you and Jay because you're kind of raucously deciding who you're going to not invite. <laughs> I laughed when I read that line and then I instantly felt bad about laughing. <laughs> um, but but Jay, your, your book begins with this epigraph. Um, Life does not cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. It's uh, George Bernard Shaw. I'm wondering if you can talk about your relationships to humor, you know, as a response to fear and tragedy and, and loss. I imagine sometimes it must be maddening to hear someone make light of something that you're scared of and vice versa. Or, you know, um, sometimes. Um, but my relationship to humor is odd. Uh, I, I was blessed with the father for whom straight conversation was impossible. <laughs> uh, so, so we had many, many wonderful conversations, but they were never about what we were talking about. So uh, I became adept at a very early age at expressing the whole human range of emotion in a joke because that was the only way my father would hear it. So he and I would just joke back and forth. And some of the joking got really very, very dark, very gallows humor. But so now, now when, I, when I, something really bad happens, um, my first inclination is to go for humor. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kid you. When I was being diagnosed and looking at the window writing the poem, my other half of my brain was filling in all these jokes about dying. Like, you know, oh, there's lots of dead space to fill up, or oh, I was dying to hear that. And I'm like, like, you know, don't, don't say that out loud. You got to be appropriate. Like, if there's one time in your life you can't cut loose is when you're being told you're gonna die, right? So, like, I'm trying to like maintain a straight face, but it was difficult. So the poems that, that are funny in the book, I mean, they're funny, but I'm laughing because I'm terrified. But I don't, know how to, I don't know how to express that terror any other way than to, than to make a joke out of it. And do you feel like there's something of feeling like a bad joke is being played or that like one is inside of a bad joke that brings that out? Or? Oh, yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel like a horrible joke uh, is being played. Um, and, you know, on, on the one hand, I'm thinking, like, that's really, that's not fair and, and all that. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, like, wow, as jokes go, not a bad one. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's, it, had, it, had all the, it had all the features of a wonderful story, you know, like diagnosed with this old man's cancer, um, like 60 years before I was even supposed to think about it, that kind of stuff. And trying to come to terms with the absurdity of the whole enterprise of, of dying and trying to die well that it's, it's difficult not to see the funny side of it sometimes. And there are, there are plenty of hilarious things about dying. <laughs> Although at the moment, 
I can't list a single one, but I, I'm sure I have that list somewhere. <laughs> I'm I'm really grateful to hear you think about this, Jay, because I myself was diagnosed with a melanoma about uh, 12 years ago, and uh, I didn't wasn't planning to kind of bring that up in our conversation today, but. It, it did feel, and I'm out of treatment and things look clear, but okay. um, that feeling of like a, a like a deeply absurd joke, because, you know, I'm brown skinned, I'm South Asian, people can't see that in the podcast, but people with my skin color don't get skin cancer. <laughs> so, you know, the doctors couldn't believe it. And, and yeah, I think there's something about the absurdity you mentioned that you know your own diagnosis was a cancer that wouldn't normally afflict someone your age and yeah yeah we're also blessed with a wonderful oncologist who is a very funny man <laughs> a lot of a lot of my clinic visits are just the the bunch of us just cutting up about impending surgeries or different treatments but i think we all at this point can laugh about it <laughs> at least enough to tell a few jokes i think from my perspective um well i have long said that i in person I'm funny, but I'm not witty. And on the page, it's the opposite. On the page, I'm witty, but I'm not funny. <laughs> and so Jay gets to be funny on the page. I think that the jokes, I mean, I don't know what it says about me that this is true. Not not anything good, but a lot of jokes that I insert into these poems are buried deeply in like etymologies or in allusions. And so... I wonder if by sublimating humor into those registers, it's one place I can exert control in the face of an uncontrollable situation or circumstance. There's so much that that response opens up, especially thinking about like what, what the difference between being witty and funny and being witty and funny in a poem versus in real life. But it also makes me think about you and Jay collaborated on an anthology of poetry, a devotional poetry called Before the Door of God a few years ago. It covers a long span of English language poetry, but in some ways I, I think of the religious and devotional aspects of poetry when I'm reading your work as kind of writers like John Donne, who the poem, Jay's poem, The Canonization, is riffing on. But also thinking about... Um, devotion as another response to mortality and life as opposed to humor and laughter. I wonder if you, it's a big question, but I wonder if you both uh, might think a little bit about your connection to poetry and the divine, um, how that's changed. And So that's a really interesting question because this book, Fatal, which we're talking about today of mine, uh, is really the first of my collections of poetry that is not in some way aligned or doesn't align itself with that long traditional devotional poetry. I feel like Fatal is a fairly secular book, for lack of a better word. That is to say, it doesn't really adopt the devotional stance. And I have thought a lot about this, and I wonder whether there's something to be said about the enormity of the present circumstances making 
Like, even a gesture toward the idea of divine sucker sometimes feels ridiculous. Ridiculous at worst, and maybe, I'm not sure which word I'm looking for here, inappropriate at best. I'm hearing sucker in two different ways when you say divine sucker, right? Yeah. <laughs> S-U-C-C-O-U-R. Yeah, I think that, that pun might characterize the pivot that I am describing here. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about poetry and devotion? No, not, not really. Not so much. I mean, all, all, my, all my poetry is devotional. I kind of think that all poetry is devotional because poetry is an act of attention, right? And so uh, the act of attending is a devotional act. I wonder what it's like for you both to talk together about such intimate and unsettling questions with these books coming out soon. I imagine you may be doing more of this, you know, uh, moving forward, or maybe you've already done it. I'd love to hear what it's like for you to be here now uh, talking to me about these things. Oh, it's, it's, this is the first one, I think, right, that we're doing. I think it's, it's so far so good. It's pretty fun. <laughs> we, we historically have found it mutually useful to be in one another's company. I mean, that's one of the reasons we got married. Um, but there's something about talking in conjunction with one another that makes it feel more comfortable and less intrusive, less personal, because we're not speaking for one another, we're speaking with one another. But for a long time, we have given readings, joint readings, where we've done what we call tag team style. So he'll stand up and read a poem. And then I'll stand up and read a poem that I think is in conversation with it. And then he'll pick up that concept or something from that poem and respond to it and we'll just kind of ping pong back and forth over the course of 40 minutes or something i don't know if audiences find that interesting but we enjoy it a lot (laughs) we do you know it is a confusing period of time and i think that for us as for many writers the process of composition is a process of clarification Uh, coming to understand by having to find words to describe what the experience is like. And so there's a way in which we become better at talking about the, the private life by virtue of our joint and separate efforts to articulate it into public or generalizable idiom. Yeah, because without the impetus to find the right words, a lot might go unexamined or unsaid or uncomprehended. It is the process of putting it into words that gives us a more mature facility with the experience, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Poetry is your, your marriage therapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so painful. That can be true. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, your book, your your poetry, I'm always kind of left at the end of your poems, like 
I have this wily e. coyote kind of feeling <laughs> where I look down and there's nothing under me. And, you know, like your book does this too. You end with a piece of sheet music. So when I was in, in Rome um, that 10 years ago, I met a composer named Paul Rudy. He had perfect pitch. So whenever a truck backed up or some like a seagull screamed, he would be like, oh, that's an A flat. You know, <laughs> it was wonderful. So when I started to work on the book and I, I thought, well, I'm going to have to write my own obituary. And I thought, you know, if I was a piece of music, like if Paul could hear me, what would that, what would that be like? So I called him and I gave him the idea and he got to work on the music. So, so that is, that's me. That's Jay Hoffler. If I were a piece of music, it was important for me to end on music because to me, writing po poetry is music. I, I look at punctuation as though it were musical notation. And I, and I score my poems as though they were uh, pieces of music. Seems fitting in my imagination if I could become my own, become my own music that other people could play. I was hoping we could end this conversation with another poem uh, related to music from your book. It's one of my favorites. It's called Honky Tonk Sonnet. Oh, yeah, the Johnny Cash duet. Yeah, would you read that? Uh... Yeah. Okay, this is a, a sonnet that I wrote. Basically, it's a, a duet between me and Johnny Cash if that had ever happened. I'm sort of sorry that that didn't ever happen. He was one of the three people that I've, all, I've wanted to meet and couldn't. So there was Johnny Cash, Bob Marley, and Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> um, but I thought, well, in a poem, I could he could still sing with me. So, so I... Uh, wrote this poem. At the end, there's um, some italicized lines and they have to be sung, so I'll do my best. Honky Tonk Sonnet, a duet with Johnny Cash. Before cancer, I was a country. Now, I'm a fucking country song. Job gone, house gone, wife diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. I'm missing more organs than a looted church. Even my dog's been repossessed. Know what I got left? Two years. The lifespan of an average rat. My wife's therapist tells me I can use this time to find out who I really am. Lord help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus. I know what I am. Squeak. I really want to thank Jay Hopler and Kimberly Johnson for sharing their poetry, their perspectives, and their time with us today. Jay's book, Still Life, comes out this June. You can read his poem, The Canonization, in the March 2022 issue of Poetry, in print and online. Kimberly's book, Fatal, comes out this May, right around the same time as Jay's. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster De Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, 
and irreversible entanglements. Okay, that's it. Till next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.